Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. To kick off the first bits of uh, tonight's proceedings, if you're like me, you know, your kind of memory of rock and pop programmes on the television is dominated by a small number that stuck around for a long time and for their pains became the object of all kinds of satires you know, which is the way that the British express their great affection for things, by taking the mickey out of them. And then there are a million and one other programmes that you've probably completely forgotten about because you were probably too young when they came out or they appeared on border television, you know, for three weeks once in 1978 and then completely disappeared. Or, or they've just mercifully, you might say, been expunged from your memory. And so this is what's going to happen here in the next, in the next half an hour is we're going to try and refresh your memory a little bit about this because it's possible that, you know, there won't be anybody here old enough to remember Six Five Special, clearly, but we're all... You know, we're, we're all aware that there was a programme called Six Fire Special in the 50s, but you may not know that there was also a programme called Cool for Cats, OK? And uh, going forward to the 60s, we're all aware of Ready, Steady, Go, whether we remember it or not, but who remembers Whole Scene Going? A uh, Whole Scene Going. We remind ourselves. We should remind ourselves. With pictures. Coming, uh, you know, nearer up today, everybody clearly remembers the tube, but does anybody remember the White Room? Yes, OK. And, uh, you know, uh, thinking about particular personalities and, and acts who flourished in this medium, you know, I realised that the mere mention of pans people may cause, you know, stirrings <laughs> in certain quarters of this room. But is there anybody who still feels that urge when they hear the name Ruby Flipper? <laughs> Possibly not. Now, everybody clearly knows that Bob Harris is the person most identified with the Algarve whistle test, but everybody has forgotten that years afterwards there were a couple of old hacks. A couple of clowns. Yeah. So that's enough about Roe Newton and Andy Kershaw. Um, 
So we, we'll move to the, the subject at hand. So as I say, I hope that a, a lot of these uh, gaps will be filled in uh, by a conversation uh, with the author of this excellent new book, Rock and Pop on British TV. Would you please welcome Jeff Evans. <laughs> We probably ought to ask, start by asking why particularly you, you felt um, you stirred to write a book about rock and pop on TV. What, what, what was the attraction? <laughs> well, I'm a terrible person to turn my hobbies into work. I mean, I write books about beer, I write books about television, and I've never written a book about pop music, so I thought it was time I did so. Because nobody done that story either. You know, it's 60 years now since uh, Cool for Cats started and Six Five Special started. No one had actually written the whole story of rock and pop music on British television from rock and roll era onwards, pre-rock and roll even, up to the present day. So I thought I'd give it a go. Were you surprised when you started doing it just how much stuff there was? You know, like I was talking about all the programmes that we've forgotten. Were you surprised yourself? I, I knew there would be a lot out there. I, I knew it wasn't just like uh, the core timeline, which, which you sort of outlined, you know, Six Five Special, Oh Boy... Uh, ready, Steady, Go, Top of the Pops, Whistle Test, and so on. I knew there was a lot going on around the outside, the regional programmes and so on. But inevitably, I kept finding new ones. Yeah. And ones which I'd never heard of before and other people had never heard of before. Um, you know, Border Beat Contest, for example, in 1964, <laughs> where there'd be a band contest on the Isle of Man or somewhere like that and these things kept popping up and uh, you know it's just a fabulous thing to do and research on because you just unearth all these little gems Did you come across anything that you thought that's the monkey tennis of kind of <laughs> pop? it doesn't exist you know I have to say when I saw mention of all systems Freeman I thought oh, yes. it can't be real but it was wasn't it? Oh, that was a fabulous show I'd love to have seen it it was the BBC's replacement for Jukebox Jury when that finished at the end of 1967. And it was a show, as the name implies, was hosted by Alan Freeman, and he devised the show based on his own radio programmes. And the idea was that he would actually sit in the studio behind a control desk like you would in a radio studio yeah. and throw all the switches and the levers and the faders. He'd have his headphones clamped to his ears, his sleeves rolled up, and he'd say, cue the music and introduce people and talk to people about new releases. So it's a very dynamic show, and it sort of made Alan Freeman... It actually bit... happened. Supersonic was pretty much like that. Yeah, well, it was, yes, yeah, 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 less yeah, than yeah. ten years later. Yeah, yeah. But it sort of made uh, Alan Freeman, if you like, the first VJ. You know, he yeah. was the first video jockey because he was there cueing the, the music and uh, presenting it in that way on screen. But it only lasted a few months, sadly. OK, well, let's go back to the... Start with let's go the, back uh, to the Jurassic era. This is pretty... <laughs> I wrote down who this was. This is... Well, it's Victor Sylvester and his ballroom orchestra. I don't have to tell you that. But the programme's called... It's a brilliant title. It's called Television Dancing Club. Right. It's pretty <laughs> self-explanatory, isn't it? And this is pre-rock and roll. It's 1948. This is pre-rock and roll. Yes, if you... pre-pop music, really. Yeah, you look at the, the history of music on television. Uh, when you get to the post-war years in the early 50s, the only music that was on television was either the highbrow stuff, it was classical music, it was operettas and things like this, or you, you'd got uh, dancing music, dance bands like that, that sort of thing. Or maybe you'd get a bit of a, a song thrown in amongst the, the comics and the jugglers on, on various variety programmes. Um, but it wasn't until 1952 that we actually had a programme which actually addressed the idea of how to properly... Uh, visualise music for television because these dance band programmes that you see 
were effectively just radio on television. They didn't do anything particular to enhance the, the music. It was just the sound, as you would have got on the radio. In 1952, the BBC went over and stole a programme from America called Hit Parade. And this was the first time that they actually tried to do something to turn those sounds, the music, into something that looked a bit more interesting on the screen. And so they put together a show with a resident bunch of singers and a resident dance troupe, and they compiled a chart uh, based on uh, sheet, sheet music sales, as it was at the time, a few of the fledgling record sales, which were knocking around, and radio requests. And they compiled a top eight every week, and they ran down this top eight. Top eight? A top eight. Never took <laughs> off that idea. No. <laughs> What's your top eight? <laughs> and uh, they had the dance group and uh, the singers to do these little dances and vignettes around each of the numbers, counting down to the, to the number one. So that show was important because it did added visual dimension to the music, right. but also being the first programme to actually introduce the idea of a record chart, sort of predicting what Top of the Pops and various other shows did over the But it's the interesting, the, the dancing element is, is, the, is a really key point, point, part of uh, the music television mix, isn't it? You know, all the way through. If you look at Radio City Go, which we're going to talk about, but if you look in America at Soul Train and things like that... That's right, yes, yes. It's more interesting to watch dancers dancing than it is to watch musicians playing music. Isn't yes, it? Or, or a combination of the two. You need to, to break it up. And whether right. it's uh, you know professional dance group or with people in the audience, yeah, it yeah. does add a, add a different dimension so, Which, in it. fact, Cool for Cats did have, didn't it? Because it was the Dougie Squires dancers. That's, that's the, uh, the addition of the TV Times announcing to a grateful nation that... Uh, Cool for Cats is about to be on their television screens in 1958. Uh, tell us about Cool... I, I remember... An aerobics I saw Cool for Cats. Cool for Cats was presented by Jim Dale, is that right? No, no, it was presented by Kent Walton. Oh, of course, Kent Walton. Well, Jim Dale was on it, OK. Yeah, On Jim. the one occasion, I'm oh, sorry. But Jim Dale did present Six Five Special for a while. Oh, right, so OK, yeah, yeah. But it was Kent Walton, who uh, most people will probably remember was the ITV wrestling the commentator... The wrestling grapple uh, ...on fans. World of Sport. Uh, <laughs> most people will remember. <laughs> well, the wrestling fans amongst us. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. yes, and he was quite an interesting character. He was born in Cairo to British parents, and uh, he, he attended Charterhouse School, so he had a public school upbringing. <laughs> but if you heard him speak, you'd think completely differently because he had this big, broad, transatlantic accent that he picked up from Canadian airmen during the war. So he was quite a, an exotic creature at the time, and you can see why they employed him on television to introduce music, because... All this exciting music coming over from the States, and suddenly you had a broadcaster locally who had the accent to go with it. So he hosted the Cool for Cats, which started on the last day of 1956, New Year's Eve. Right. But, but also, it's interesting that point all the way through, isn't it, that, um, that they felt that rock and roll had to be done in the American style with all these programmes, didn't they? That they yeah. kind of had to pretend to be American. Is that the case? Well, uh, I mentioned the programme Hit Parade earlier on. When that first started, the very first programme, it was done with an American accent introducing each of the songs as, as they went on. But that was killed after the first episode because the hierarchy of the BBC hated it. Oh, see. You know, the, the Oxbridge-educated hierarchy of the BBC, who were rather stuffy at the time, didn't want this American accent. They realised they needed to, to, to borrow from the Americans in terms of presentation, but not go too far. Now, one person, I think, who was, who was very significant in this whole movement is is jack good and this is tell us about jack good that's jack good well jack good a lot of people have described as being the father of rock music television both in here both here and in america because he was the guy who actually knocked the bbc into shape and got them to produce programs that young people actually wanted 
to see and to listen to, particularly with 6-5 Special. Now, Jack was a... Um, he, he joined the BBC and been trained up as a producer, but he hadn't actually got a programme yet. Um, he um, was eventually co-opted onto this new programme, this new magazine programme for Saturday evenings, which was called 6-5 Special, as an associate producer. The main producer was going to be a lady called Josephine Douglas. Uh, and she was very much BBC... In the, in the BBC mould, the Rethian values, if it's going to edu entertain, it's got to educate and inform at the same time. Uh, whereas Jack was quite, quite the opposite. He was a rebel. And all he wanted to do was to bring some excitement to television. And it worked in his favour in the way that uh, Joe Douglas was also going to be presenting the programme. She was the co-host of the programme with Pete Murray. And so she wasn't always behind the production desk, which meant Jack could do things that she didn't know about. And so he started bringing in things that would make the show a lot more exciting, like thrusting the audience in front of the cameras and making it more of an anarchic uh, situation. And it was he was responsible, really, for the exciting bits of 6-5 Special because the show otherwise was just a, a sort of youth magazine programme. Yeah. It had classical music on it, it had really jazz music, music on it, it had skiffle, it had a film spot, it had a sports shot, it, it had... Uh, features on mountaineering or hairdressing, that sort of thing. When it started, we've all forgotten mountaineering. That. That's <laughs> Did he manage Marty Wilde and, and Billy? No, Fury? no. Well, I don't think that was. Um, he didn't actually manage them. He did produce uh, Billy Fury's Sound of Fury album in 1960, and he he was the person who discovered Cliff Richard and yeah. moulded Cliff Richard into a pop star. Wasn't he also the person who famously brought over Gene Vincent for a tour and? Uh, that's right, and, yes. And uh, he was the person heard in the, in the wings going, limp, you bug out, limp. Because <laughs> <That's right. laughs> he, he, he guessed at what, he was his, what was his major appeal. Yes, he, so, brought, he brought Gene Vincent over and he found he was too polite. So he right. thought he was going to be a bit of a rebel, so he dressed him in black. And because Gene Vincent had this accident on a motorbike and was, had, had a bad leg, he made him limp and made him exaggerate the limp to look more of a rebel and more earthy and town to earth. So, Jukebox Jury. This is, the, this is the first one I remember. And it was, you so when, is, when is Jukebox Jury when? Roughly, what years does it... It started in the summer of 1959 and it ended at the end of 1967. Right. So explain for the people in the audience who are clearly too young to have any memory of this at all. How did this, how did this become television magic? Well, it was, people behind it, it was another story that another program that was actually pinched from America. Uh, it was actually seen in America in 1953, but uh, didn't survive over there. And it wasn't until, as I say, 1959, that the show had a life again. But this time, it wasn't in America. It was over here when the BBC was still trying to find a replacement show for. Six Five Special, which had been knocked out of the water by Jack Good, who had gone over to ITV and created this magnificent rock and roll showcase called Oh Boy. But they came up with this idea from America, which basically worked along the lines of you had four panellists, you played them a record, David Jacobs was the host, he'd put a record on, the record would play for uh, 30 seconds, a minute or so, <laughs> and you'd see the panellists deliberating about it, and then they all had to decide, having given their comments on the record, whether it was going to be a hit or a miss. They had a little disc. Was gong? Was they, had a di disc? they had a disc. Now, and I think it was going to be a hit. I think David hit a bell on his, on his desk. And if it was going to be a miss, he reached under the desk and there was some kind of... And occasionally like the, 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 the person who made the record was brought out from behind a curtain. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Having told the record right. was a mystery yeah. guest. And, and as you can see, 
here, it always featured Pete Murray, didn't it? Pete Murray had to be there. Usually I remember Sam Costa was, uh, you know, and then there's usually some starlet that you never heard of again. Well, this is right. I mean, you had the odd DJ on. Pete Murray was on quite a lot. But very often you get people on there who knew nothing about music whatsoever. No, no. It was equivalent of a chat show in those days. People would go on it for the TV publicity. So you'd get people like Peggy Mount or Kenneth Wolstenholme yes, coming well. on. I mean, you what would, they knew about would. contemporary music is anybody's but it guess. Was, it was also the vision of, of people watching people listening to music. You know what I mean? People yeah. going like this, rather, you know, tapping and with their pencils and things on the That's desk it. to show how with Trying it they hip. were. That's right. Could you say that this was the, was the sort of forerunner of, of the voice and uh, Britain's Got Talent and stuff? I don't know. Well, in in the sense that format, you had first sort of TV criticism, yeah. I suppose, yeah. where people have started pulling apart records yeah. and giving their verdicts on them, I suppose, yeah. So, but moving forward into the, you know, into the mid-60s here, we got this rather fabulous picture of, uh, of Ray Davis, I think it is, uh, on the set of Ready, Steady, Go!, now, Ready, Steady, Go! didn't lo- run for very long, did it, really? Three years. Three years. And it's why is it still, you know, talked about and remembered so fondly? Is it because well, people haven't seen it? Well, it could be, yeah, because there's so few editions around. I mean, there, there are some available. Some were shown again in the 1980s on Channel 4. Dave Clark from the Dave Clark Five, he bought up the rights and re-edited the programmes, and, and some went out on Channel Featuring 4. Featuring the Dave Clark 5 prominently. <laughs> Brilliantly re-edited. Surprisingly, yes. Yeah. You could, sometimes you see the Dave Clark 5 finish a song, and then you see this raucous applause, and there's people holding up I Heart Ringo. He's actually <laughs> edited the Beatles' reaction into the Dave Clark 5. Brilliant. But yeah, yes, good, he did good work from it. Yeah. But uh, it, 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 Ready, Steady, Go worked really well, because it did capture that heyday of, of beat boom in Britain with the Beatles and the Stones and all the, the bands at that time. It was vibrant, it was exciting, it was live on a Friday evening at about 6.15. The weekend starts here was the slogan that they used. And it was produced by people who were actually part of that audience, effectively. Mm -hmm. Young people who knew what the music was about, knew what the fashions were about, knew what the dance moves were all about. And they made it for people like themselves. And so it was very, very astutely put together by Associated Radio Fusion. Fact, she is, Catherine McGowan was the, well, pretty much one of the first kind of you know, young television stars, wasn't she? That's right. When the show started, uh, Keith, Fordyce, Keith Fordyce was the host. And he was you know, ancient. He was like about 34 or something. Yeah, yeah. imagine uh, that. But then, after a while, they decided to put some young people in. And they advertised for some teenagers. They got a guy called Michael Aldred, who was 18, and came on the show. And at the same time, Kathy McGowan, who was 19. And they auditioned all these people and came up with Kathy McGowan, uh, who narrowly beat in the final audition Anne Nightingale. Oh, really? Who, who was she going never to talks be, about that. Who was going to be on Ready, Steady, Go. Yeah. Do you think it, there, was, there was any of the thinking behind the selection of Kathy McGowan was, and I don't mean to be ungallant here, she wasn't fabulously glamorous. Because they could no doubt have had kind of Jean Shrimpton and lookalikes around the block, but they decided they wanted somebody that nobody would feel threatened by when they interviewed Paul McCartney. That, that's right, and also the fact that she wasn't an established television presenter. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because she wasn't very good. I mean, most people would say she wasn't very good when she started, particularly. Uh, she'd fluff the line, she'd get very embarrassed and starstruck when she's interviewing Paul McCartney or whoever it might be. Uh, there was lots of smashings and things that she said. You know, she couldn't get a lot of. Um, words out um, very fluently. Um, but um, it ticks every box. <laughs> <laughs> 
but, but, but as you say, she didn't threaten the audience. They felt that she was one of them. Right. She could have just stepped off the floor and, and introduced the programme. So the other you know, respect in which the audience were featured in there was that the dancers were a hugely important part of it, weren't they? They, they kind of That's right. They combed the clubs, didn't they? And they were specially selected. Kathy McGowan and the editor of the programme, a lady named Vicky Wickham, yeah, yeah. they used to go to places like the Speakeasy and see who was dancing. And later on, they formed a club, and you could be, join the club. If you were a good enough dancer and had all the right fashions, you could be part of the club and join a rota to be brought into the show on a regular basis. Right, so three years, but it's, it, you know, it's legend still remains. We all still feel very warmly disposed to it. This next programme, Top of the Pops, this is, you know... Classic BBC studio shot with studio audience and cameraman and so forth. This ran for how long? When it uh, starts 40, mid-60s? 42 years, okay, yes. Okay, right, right. So um, did it change much during that time? Um, in the later years, yes, they did try to make a lot of changes to try and keep it going when you know it was clearly on, on a downward spiral. But for most of his life, it didn't, because he had certain structures, certain rules that the, the programme followed. It, it was obviously based on the record chart, and it had to follow the dynamic of the record chart. And the rule was that only records rising up the charts could be featured in the programme. Anything that was going down the charts was yesterday's news and wasn't going to be included. And he always ended the show with the number one. And there were other little rules and things built in again, like you know, no artist for two weeks running unless it was number one. Uh, so the show was very formulaic in, man, in many ways and almost made itself. I mean, you, you had the music changing through the years, but the show itself was pretty steadfast, I think. And also and, the great tension that was usually only one television set. And so the whole family had to watch and you got that, that dad would be waiting to see or mum would wait to see Ken Dodd or something and the kids would be waiting to see the swinging blue jeans. It's that, a really important point. And that's, that, that, that dynamic remained right through till the 80s when we were at smash hits. You know, there was still that tremendous kind of energy that it created by people just arguing about... Absolutely. You, you'd be sitting there with your father and your father was guaranteed to say at some point, either you call this music or... Is it a boy or is, is it, it a, a boy or is it a girl? <laughs> and the you know, fathers throughout the decades, you know, I'm sure if it came back, the fathers would still do it, do it now. So what was the high point of Top of the Pops? What was, you know... Uh, I think that the, the, the heyday of Top of the Pops would have been during the glam rock era in the early 70s. If you think about it, Colour Television came in on BBC yeah. One at the end of 1969. Uh, and then almost straight after, in, in 1970-71, you got the start of glam rock, we got Bowie, we got Boland, we got Gary Glitter, we got all these people who were dressed and in bright-coloured costumes and tinsel and what have you. And uh, they were ideal for Top of the Pops, and Top of the Pops was ideal for it, for them as well, you know. It was sort of rare colour at a time when it was quite a grey time in Britain at the moment. At that time, we had industrial unrest with three-day weeks and that sort of thing. And Top of the Pops coming out on a Thursday night was a sort of ray of sunshine coming out of the TV screens. And these glam rock figures were very much part of that. And presumably, I, I'm trying to remember, when you watched Top of the Pops in those days, did you know what number one the number one was? Well, you would have known because the chart was released on a Tuesday. Was it uh, all um, the way the, through its life? Was yes, it? okay, yes, yes. Right, right. So what was it... What was, you know, I mentioned Legs & Co, I think, earlier, or Pan's People. And uh, this may be just the memories of an old man, you know, but <laughs> I remember that was the only sex on television. In those <laughs> was it? I mean, am I right in that memory? Oh, yeah. was, Possibly. We, we forgot Cas- Casanova on BBC Two with Frank Okay, Kimby. all right. 
Well, that was probably <laughs> past my bedtime. But uh, you know, they they it, they were a hugely important part of the uh, of the mix, weren't they? You know. That's right, yes, and, and uh, yeah, no matter how risible the dance routines might have been and, and, and how oh, literally they not. might have been, <laughs> and how literally they interpreted the lyrics of the song, uh, you know, Gilbert O'Sullivan and dogs for Get Down and that sort of thing, um, it was the visual side of it which appealed, I think, to a certain part of the audience, yeah. Hey, <laughs> anyway, I mean, it was, very, it was very exciting to watch on television, but if you ever went to a recording... You know, it was in a tiny, you know, studio, and uh, and all you could hear was the sound of people's feet moving around on, <laughs> on the floor, even when the bands were playing. You know, because the the music wouldn't be too loud oh. for fear that it would disturb the uh, the technicians. You know, we were too loud for them. You know, so it was a it was an extraordinary contrast between the two. But as you say, ran for how long? Forty something. Forty two years. Yes. Forty two years. That's absolutely extraordinary. And so I thought, yeah, I thought this is worth putting in because. It, the Beatles were just as influential when they didn't appear on, on Top of the Box as they were when they did because they, they had to, because they were so busy with the world market they, they had films made to, to, to substitute their appearances and actually I, I think I'm right in saying that those were sort of the dawn of MTV weren't they I mean you know Lindsay Hogg made that Michael Lindsay Hogg who directed um, Mark can actually tell us the date that this I picture think was taken go on third, I think it was 30th of March 1966 yeah Chiswick okay. House Grounds it's, it's, paperback writer and rain that's in Mark's stop if I'm boring you that's it's, Mark's back garden it's, it's, Chiswick yeah, it's, it's uh, he moved around yeah. some of these statues for the uh, for the benefit right. of the of the production but, company. But yeah, but they were just that whole idea that that, that you 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 bought into the, the concept of a band pretending to play instruments, which weren't even played, you know, uh, plugged in, or in fact not even playing instruments at all. Just just became, music became a soundtrack to a little miniature movie. That that sort of started here, really. Didn't it? It, it did. I mean, it started with Top of the Pops not being able to cover all the gaps every week because you know the, the chart would come out on a Tuesday, the show had to go out on a Thursday. And therefore, you couldn't get all the artists you wanted into in the show. In the early days, they'd use stills or they'd use a bit of library footage. And then they brought in dancers initially, a dance group called the Go-Go's, a uh, Go-Jo's, and then Pants People, as you mentioned. Oh, the Go-Jo's. Do you remember God. them? Oh, Things are stirring here. <laughs> Dave's doing a bit quiet for a while now. <laughs> Carry on. Yeah, but then they, they'd also then create uh, little films. Uh, they'd get films made in America and flown over. They needed a certain amount of clairvoyance, of course, because you didn't know exactly no, no, what was no, going to no. go up the chart or what was going to go down, which was a bit awkward at times. But then you had, you know, bands like the Beatles who wouldn't come into the studio for obvious reasons because they were just too big a draw and the, the logistics of it were a nightmare. They'd get the Beatles in and maybe record them at another studio earlier, but not part of the top of the pop setup. Um, or, as you, as you say, they started making little films that could be shown instead. And uh, ironically, you mentioned that, that's Paperback Writer. That was the one time they did actually go into the studio and do Top of the Pops Live, was to do Paperback Writer in 1966. And they also did The Other Side, Rain, because the Beatles were afforded this luxury of sometimes having their B-sides on Top of the Pops as well as their A-sides. Right. So, moving forward... Um Late sixties here, and I do it's remember. It's, 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 it's for, deliberately for under twenty ones. I love yes. that. Yes, if you're over twenty one, nobody you know, else can't watch it. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so is this? It, when is this? Nineteen sixty eight or something? No, it's like? earlier than that. Oh, right, actually, nineteen sixty six. Right. And it this was is BBC, is it? BBC early evening. It was the sort of first attempt to sort of bring pop music into the wider arts community, with a slant for young people. So it was aimed, uh, so it had pop music in it, but it also had 
theatre, it had film, it had the, the club scene. Comedy sketches. Comedy sketches. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it even had a sort of um, an interview spot where, the, where the, the, the audience in the studio could actually interview yeah, the, pop stars for the first that's time. That's quite a significant thing, isn't it? The way yeah. of connecting an audience. The audience interviewed The Who, in fact, it, on this edition. It's so yeah. funny, though, the magazine programme format. I, I don't yeah. even remember. I think Not the Nine O'Clock News did a withering piss take of this yeah. thing years ago where they always had, you know, tonight we've got a mime artist and a poet. People sitting and, on and somebody goes, when's the band on? <laughs> That's all they're interested in. When's the band yeah. on? You know, and uh, and this is presented by Barry Fantoni, who's still involved with Private yeah, Eye. Yeah, he's a cartoonist. Private yeah, Eye, yeah. yeah. Uh, and but that, how long did that last then? Um, it lasted only about six months. Um, it eventually got taken off because the ratings weren't very good, um, and also because the director of BBC One didn't think it was good enough. And also because he felt there was probably a bit too much pop music in it, because he wanted, he didn't think there should be another pop music show. He liked the idea of the pop arts and pop culture thing, but too much pop music (laughs) for him. (laughs) It's a tension that still exists nowadays. But this isn't it? is this is a really interesting story because I think John Lennon was part of the the, um, the, the development of the program, wasn't he? Didn't he, didn't he give um, the uh, this is Tony Palmer? Tony, Tony, Tony Palmer's Palmer. all my love. Contacts and try and advise him and, yeah. and say and say also that the Rolling Stones must not be on the program. Is that right? I, I don't think he had actually said that, but he certainly was at the heart of it all because he was very friendly with, with Tony Palmer who was working as a producer, young yeah. producer, director at the BBC. And uh, over lunch, he said to Tony, look, you're in a position of influence. You've got to do something. We've got to change the image of music on television. He said the musicians out there these days, they don't want to do Top of the Pops anymore because when they're on Top of the Pops, they're always obscured by these gyrating dancers. They want to be taken seriously. They're playing proper music now. They're writing their own music. They're going into studios and producing their own music. Uh, and they have a lot to say about the world in which they live, musically and politically. You've got to do a film about them. You know, John Lennon, very direct, very forceful. So poor Tony goes back to the BBC, and uh, actually he'd started writing a, a column on music for the, I think it was The Observer at that time, and he'd had some success with a, a film he'd made about Benjamin Britten, and he was in the BBC's Good Books, and Hugh Weldon, the, the director of the BBC, or I think he was the director general or at the top of the BBC at that time anyway, said to him, well, you, you do pop music now, why don't you do, do a film about it? So he was able to go back to Lennon and said, you're on. So Lennon had given him all these names of people that had to be in the programme. And he said, I'll tell them to do it, you just make the film. So that's what happened. So Tony Palmer went around uh, interviewing all these people and making this very interesting, very different sort of film which he called a film of pop music, not a film about pop music, because he didn't want to describe it himself. He wanted the musicians and the music it, itself to, to speak for itself. And considered it so controversial, it was delayed for a bit, wasn't it? By Wasn't David Attenborough the Yeah, David Attenborough was, was, yeah. was Tony's uh, boss at the BBC, and he wouldn't put it out because <laughs> it was very controversial and um, rather violent in places, because... Although the, the nature of the film was to cover the whole history of uh, the whole s- system of how pop music is made, and that sort of went through from you know how records are made to fan mail arriving to to bands posing for album covers and things like that, right away through to performance and so on. Uh, it also had, as I said, these these artists speaking their minds about the political world, and you know this is the late sixties, nineteen sixty eight, the Vietnam War was on, and they had people on there like uh, Eric Burton. Um, who, who, were, who were happy to speak their minds and uh, say things as they felt they were. Frank Zappa was on there doing the same sort of thing. 
So Tony Palmer, being a filmmaker, wanted to illustrate that in a way, and so he cut into the film oh, right, scenes yes. of graphic violence from these war zones around the world. A young man being shot in the head in, in Asia, um, a Buddhist monk, Buddhist monk engulfed in flames, police brutality on the streets of, of America. The sort of images, actually, even if you saw them now, would be prefaced with a warning on the 6 yes, o'clock news saying, look, look away if you don't want to see this. Uh, but it wasn't in those days. And so you had these short bits of graphic violence cut into the film. And when the BBC saw it, they said, no way, is that going out? And it wasn't until a new guy came in who was more amenable to Tony's ideas that the programme actually right. went out. It also had close-ups of Ginger Baker, which should also have had a... <laughs> anybody. Look away. Yeah, you know, look away now. Children. Yeah. I, 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 the only thing I remember about that film was I think I'm right in saying Jack Bruce at some point goes, Bach was a great bass player. <laughs> and we all went, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It didn't lead anywhere at all. Um, so move, moving on, uh, this is this is the the forerunner, one of the forerunners of old great whistle of the old great yeah, yeah. whistle test. Yeah. Is that right? It is. Yeah. So Colour me pop. So this is again. This is when colour starts to arrive. What sixty nine, seventy, something like that. Yeah. This is nineteen sixty eight. Colour right. had, had arrived on BBC Two, but not BBC One. And obviously, the BBC wanted to draw attention to this new investment that they made. <laughs> pop black. Colour me pop. Yeah. <laughs> More or less, that yeah. was it. Um, so they came up with that title. The, the word pop in the title is probably a bit misleading because it wasn't sort of focused on, on singles market like Top of the Pops was. It was definitely looking at the album scene. Spooky Tooth, Jethro Tull, all that sort of stuff. Wasn't that, it? that sort yeah. of thing. And you had bands on there that, oh, yes, they did have hit singles, but they also had albums that could, could be talked about and would play several tracks from those albums. They would give them sort of a half-hour showcase and they, they could just spend their time playing their songs through. You had bands like the Moody Blues and the, the Who were on them, things like... Uh, not the Who, sorry, the Moody But they played there. for an hour, half an hour? Half an hour, yes. Oh, it, my God. Great, imagine that's, that. But if you didn't like them, the temptation <laughs> to switch. <laughs> but you see, that's always the problem, that's, you know, that, uh, yeah. you know, musicians playing live in the studio is blokes operating yeah. heavy machinery, isn't it? it? Is. It's not it TV magic. Yeah. Unless you have dancers or something else that's happening, uh, happening with it. So um, that then leads on to... Uh, we don't the, know who this group is. We, <laughs> we just found this, this picture. This is, somebody on old this is generic whistle test Does anybody recognise this band? Got Nobody, absolutely no idea. You're going to have a bloke in dungarees and a kind of pimp hat... Guy here looks like he's wandered in for focus. Susie Quattro's uh, sister. Uh, on Elkie Brooks. Elkie Brooks, it looks yeah, like. Yeah. Uh, but we don't know. Anyway, they'll have to stand in for... Sorry, anybody? Got any ideas? No? Sorry? Oh, Dada, the forerunner of Vinegar Joe. Is that right? So who's that then? Is that Robert Palmer? OK, I'll let you have that. I, is that Robert Palmer? OK, that's good. No, no, fine, excellent. Yeah. So is that LP winner... Then? Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, and so uh, at the top there, you know, Bob in classic fashion with the kind of you know, the, the sporting T-shirt on there, standing in front of... Talking about the tight rhythm section. Probably there. Yeah. Uh, so we're talking about 1971 is when this when, when this. That's starts. right, September 1971, the same week that the Partridge family started on television. Right. <laughs> Four days later. Right, right. And so the, this was a very definite attempt to say... You know, we do Top of the Bops is about singles. This is about albums, yeah? That's right, yeah. Right. That, that, that was the rule. Singles on Top of the Pops, albums on Old Grey Whistle Test, yeah. And so what sort of time slots was it in? Was it always shifted about to accommodate the snooker? 
Or uh, was it, you know... Well, it was always that late-night Tuesday slot. Right. Which uh, was, you know, really out of the way, but somehow it developed a following, and, you know, as you know, through the 70s, it just became the show to watch, yeah. But that rule, that rule didn't change, did it? I mean, when punk rock came along, there were a load of groups who just had singles and didn't make an album, no, but they no, couldn't sure. be on the whistle just until they'd made an album. Yeah. Because the album right. was a sign that you were, made a well, serious was, artistic But, it, but it's also, the, the thing you have to recognise, particularly programmes for the BBC, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this with, with Paul later, is that... The, the most important audience is within the BBC. And so within the BBC, the whistle test budget was we do something different yeah. from Top of the Pops. And so if you're seen to go on their territory, somebody else you know, wants you to move that, your tanks off, off their lawn. Did you find in your researches looking at this that, this, um, that the core audience for the whistle test was blokes who ran off licences? <laughs> <laughs> no? <laughs> I just want to know no. if you got, you got empirical evidence to prove that. If you were a presenter of Whistle Test any time of your life and you went to an off-licence... Guaranteed. You, the, the bloke would look up and go, you should get ZZ Top back on. Yeah. <laughs> were fantastic. It was only guys in off-licences, yeah. you know, sitting by a, fl- a small flickering telly on an upturned... Waiting for Rory Gallagher ...in repeats. the back room, yeah. you know. Yeah. It was the only, the yeah. only person watching it. And so... Um, was it? I mean, how how popular was it at its height? When was its height? I think its height was probably um, in the early seventies, leading up to to that moment you mentioned when punk rock arrived, because that was a a major issue for Whistle Test and major issue for Bob, particularly as as you probably know, um, because the punk movement really did resent the fact that you know that they were sort of the in the happening in thing in the ch- in the clubs and in, and increasingly in the music charts. Well, to the extent that Bob was physically assaulted by the Sex Pistols was, yeah. road crew for yeah. being emblematic of, uh, <laughs> you know, everything that was... Well, the, truth, the, the truth is that the members of the Sex Pistols used to sit and watch Whistle Test ho- hoping that can were coming yeah, on or exactly. Magma did. or yeah, somebody yeah. like that. They, they, were, like they were all, all prog heads. Yeah, they, they were. They were hoping that Magma was there accompanied by some pe- yeah. um, bit of film... By Philip Jenkins' film finders, of, you know, right. from 1930s musical or whatever, exactly. had been put together. Uh, so, but it, you know, it became a kind of funny. It became a kind of joke quite early on, didn't it? And well, I say yeah, this yeah, somebody yeah. used to work for it. I know. Yeah, it, it, it was the, the sort of thing that you'd see on sketch shows. Yes. People taking Eric Idle would always be That's right. But but now, extraordinarily, it has. Sorry, just one further point on whistle test. It has this extraordinary afterlife, thanks to YouTube. So it's all there on YouTube yeah. in a yeah, million right. bits and pieces, isn't it? Yeah. I ne- barely a day goes by without I, I get an email from somebody saying, "Oh, you look a bit weird introducing." The psychedelic first. Magma. I have yeah. no recollection of introducing psychedelic <laughs> first. And I go and look and I go, oh, God, yes, I did. Um, moving on, uh, well, it, it, it's, yeah, mid 70s, I suppose we're talking about here. The extraordinary, the phenomenon of Mike Mansfield and Supersonic. <laughs> yes. For the benefit of people here who are clearly too young to remember it, you know. Well, <laughs> Explain how this worked. Well, Mike Mansfield had been around for quite a while. He'd produced uh, quite a few music shows in the uh, in the sixties for Southern Television, including one which is called Time for Blackburn, which was a showcase for Tony Blackburn. Um, All Systems Freeman, Time t- for Blackburn. Exactly. There's Not enough time for it. Blackburn. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he, he came back in the in the seventies, and you know ITV had always struggled to get a sort of pop rival to the top of the pops. 
And this was their big attempt in, in 1975 with London Weekend Television. And they put together this show, which tried to use every bit of pop gimmickry it could find. Um, it had uh, big-name stars in the studio performing um, with lots of different camera tricks, confetti coming from the ceiling, dry ice, the whole works. But the biggest gimmick of all was, as you can see in the picture there, was not having a host for the programme. It was the director himself who acted as a sort of proxy host by introducing the bands by cueing them in. Yeah. So he'd say something like, stand by camera to... Susie Quattro? Yes. And it was always Susie Quattro. Roll music and cue Slade, Mama, we're all crazy now, that sort of thing. And that was the intro to the band and told them to start playing. Can you, can you imagine the you know the producer director wants to reluctantly putting himself forward to be in front of the camera? You know, I'll do it. I'll I'll take a bullet for the I'll team. I don't really want to at Mal all. Gary went on to present a program. Oh, did he? Yes, he did. Yes, they he did, all yes. did the tube. Yeah. Try and restrain them. Yeah. So how long did that run? Not very long, about two two years or so. Again, right. the problem that they had a lot of ITV shows, music shows had was. They weren't what was called networked. In other words, they weren't yeah, shown by yeah. all the ITV regions on the same day at the same time. So that you then struggled to build an audience. Yeah, and struggled to get acts to do it because they couldn't get impact by being guaranteed That's to be right. broadcast yeah. nationally. We thought this is worth putting in because this, this I remember, has been the first time that anybody... Um, it was Alan Yentob, actually, who made the programme, that, um, that anybody... The people who were running the media were now of sufficient age to be kind of in control and wanted to make huge, important art statement documentaries about the music they grew up with. And that, this was the first time I remember a really serious documentary looking at Bowie and a small uh, yes, I mean, pop uh, phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, you had Tony Palmer, we mentioned, <laughs> with All My Loving. He made some films about Cream because he was a very big Cream fan. But then you move on a few years and you get Alan Yentob making this film about David Bowie, which was shot in America in 1974 while he was on tour. Um, the Ziggy Sardis thing had been uh, deemed superfluous. He, he ditched that character, killed him off, and he was on the Diamond Dogs tour. And this was the first time, I think, a television programme had really sort of got close to David Bowie. They interviewed him on the road and in the dressing rooms and in concert and things like that and actually tried to lift the mask about who this strange character was, who wasn't just a musician, he was also an actor and an artist and all these other things as well. And uh, it was the first insight that people had through this omnibus presentation. It was part of the omnibus series. It's interesting, isn't it? That they want to lift the mask and all they end up doing is creating more mystique yeah, all the time because that then became part of his image, didn't it? Uh, yeah, yes. As this guy that was kind of hiding away in the back of, lim back of limousines. Um, so it goes... Uh, Tony Wilson, when are we talking here? Late 70s, 76, 77? Started in 76. Yeah, right. because it did. It, they had the Chieftains and they had Kiss and then they finished up having, you know, the Sex Pistols. The That's remote. right. So they bridged that, that gap. Yeah, they sort of Far arrived. Of the whistle test. They arrived in 1976. Granada asked him to make the programme. He was working as a reporter on Granada Reports, the local news magazine. And um, they asked him to make a programme on music, but he didn't have enough confidence in the music that was around at the start of 1976 in order to do so. If you think about it, this was pre-punk. This is when uh, pop music was over-commercialised. Uh, the prog bands were, were doing stadiums. There was dry ice everywhere. It all got overblown. And it needed that sort of... Uh, Disinfectant, if you like, of, of punk Clive to clear James. it all out. Didn't have Chuck Clive James doing something. Sort of That's right. Yeah, yeah. Be, yeah, because he didn't have the confidence to make it a total yeah. music program. He brought Clive James in to do a weekly monologue and showed clips of films and things like that. But in the very last episode of the first series, he had Sex Pistols on with Anarchy in the UK. 
And by the time the series came back, punk was all over the place, new wave was all over the place. So he was able to ditch all the other elements and just make it a pure music program. And it was filled of you know the jam and the stranglers and the damned and the clash and, and so on. But it still didn't last that long, did it, really? Only that one other series, yeah. Right, right. Again, for this ITV problem of not networking again. Andrew Ridgely appears sorry, to be wearing a dress. Sorry, look away now, sorry, sorry. It looks like he's wearing a dress. <laughs> <laughs> it should have had a disclaimer yeah. there. This uh, is a shot, I think, from the tube, isn't it? Uh, uh, and, and the tube was incredibly influential. Why, why was, and also there was a time when everything changed in broadcasting. There was... Uh, more daytime programmes, more satellites started, didn't it? And, well, uh, the 80s in broadcasting was, was a really opening up situation. Yeah. You, you got the extra fourth channel, you got breakfast television starting, yeah. daytime television starting, satellite by the end of the decade. So there were more hours for more music programmes, if you like, and Channel 4 certainly did deliver a lot of music programmes, the two being the main one, of course, which started just a few days after the channel went on air. But it, it, you know, like all the, the great music shows that you mentioned over the years, it really caught the mood of the time uh, and caught the music scene of the time. You know, back in the 50s, it was Old Boy with the rock and roll. The 60s had Ready, Steady, Go with the beat and so on. Um, and going on to the 90s, you got something like TFI Friday with Britpop. The tube was what captured the music of, of the 80s and really worked as well because it was such a chaotic programme. It wasn't, you know, overly rehearsed like television programmes have been up to that mm. time and overly scripted. Well, it was live. It, sort of it encouraged his pants, yeah. It encouraged things going wrong, didn't it? I mean, That's it right. wanted it, chaos. And, yeah, but I suppose it's also here where you start getting the, the um, introduction of that phenomenon where people think TV is the place where I go on to do something attention-getting yeah. that's going to get written about in the papers. I've got three yeah. minutes to get myself into the headlines. Uh, and uh, therefore, are we wearing the shorts? Yes, we're yeah. wearing the shorts. You yeah. know, that's, what, that's, that's what the performance is, is mainly all about. Moving forward... I, I think this is fantastically significant because it, uh, my theory is... This is Live Aid. This is what invented, what invented the whole back catalogue nostalgia market, you know, that people suddenly saw David Bowie and they saw Queen and they saw Who and The Who and they saw McCartney and Crosby, Stills and Nash and they kind of forgotten about those people. Yeah. And, and reminded right. how good they were and they went back and buying their, to buying their records again, which had all then come out on the new exciting, shiny CD format. So exactly, the whole yes. idea of television nostalgia, I think, was... was, 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 was Brought in by this event. Yeah, bringing the old back, artists back and mixing them yeah. with the new artists and appealing to a bigger audience than ever, yeah. But I think it's also, this is the establishment, the pop music is aimed at the middle of the road. It's the middle-aged audience, you know, it's the majority of the, pub, yeah. pub, uh, the population. Pop music in the 60s was consumed largely by people between the ages of 12 and 25 or yeah. whatever. Mm-hmm. In 1985, it's consumed by people in their 40s. That's right. You've got people coming back to the music who had perhaps gone away because away from it because they had yeah. jobs and yeah. mortgages and kids and so on. They saw Live Aid and were inspired to pick up the back catalogues right. of Queen and David Bowie and Status Quo, whoever it might have been on. And so, you, you, you know, you, you're seeing probably the beginning of the end of that kind of programming that's represented by this, which is the word... Which was that Channel Four, right? Yeah, Channel, Channel Four. Channel Four. Four, yeah. Channel Four. Uh, which is the idea of youth programming, isn't it? You know, that's what that was. Yeah. What you found is music was getting more and more um, split up in the schedules. You didn't get so much direct music programs now, just compact music programs, unless they were sort of after midnight in the in the graveyard slot or mixed in with youth culture and youth programs. 
And these programs are often very, very controversial and deliberately outrageous, the word being the best example, of course. Musically, you know, it had its moments. I mean, it's a strong musical heritage to it. Terry Christian, who was, of course, one of the presenters, had been a champion of bands in Manchester before he came to the programme, and so brought the Manchester thing with him. Jo Wiley was a, was a booker on the programme, so she booked a lot of the, the bands for it as well. Oasis made their TV, TV debut on it as well. But you had to sort of wade through all the other stuff that went through it. And if you didn't like that, you know, the, these people called the hopefuls who would do anything to be on television, whether it's snogging a granny or, or eating a oh, plate yeah, of eating, eating or a pound something. of lard. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which is, again, you know, rolled out the carpet for, for, for shows like uh, I'm a Celebrity, really. Exactly, you? Yeah. But you see, Gross if, and YouTube. if you're doing post-11 yeah, yeah. o'clock television, yeah. you are broadcasting to drunks, aren't yeah. you? Yeah, <laughs> you are. And uh, particularly on a Friday night, you're definitely broadcasting drunks. Yes, and they're up for the finer points of music. Yeah. Whereas a bloke swallowing something that he didn't ought to be swallowing. Everyone's interested. That's yeah, <laughs> appointment television, isn't it? Oliver Reed appeared on, on the word completely pissed singing a version of Wild Thing backed by Ned's Atomic Dustbin. Do <laughs> you remember that? Oh, right? I think bound so. to be on YouTube, ladies and gentlemen, when you sure. go home. I'm actually, I made that up. <laughs> uh, at, but one of the longer-lasting, you know, latter-day programmes is obviously later with Jules Holland. You know, when did that start? 92, so celebrating 25 years this year. Right, right. Which is, you know... Is that, does that have a big audience? Or? Not, not particularly, no. I mean, it's a, it's a Friday night late thing. Uh, and bearing in mind, uh, you know, that size of the audience and the cost of putting the show together, if it had been on a commercial network, it wouldn't have lasted a year or two. Right. It's only because it's on the BBC with this commitment to diversity and the fact that, uh, you know, it's, it, it'll, it'll allow it to run on a, on, on, on a quiet time of the day that, that, that it happens. Right. Um, so talking about, uh, you know, other BBC, you know, initiatives on the music front, Glastonbury is now, you know, has gone from being this kind of bizarre, freakish event that hardly anybody knew about to now being like Wimbledon, isn't it? It's exactly right. like that. It's like a sporting event. You go to watch, it's like watching a band on the main stage. It's like watching, you know, Andy Murray at the Open or something. Well, it's with a, the audience. But people thing, watch it? Wimbledon who don't like tennis. Yeah. And similarly, people watch Glastonbury yeah. who don't like music, I'm yeah. sure. You know, yeah. you need to feel good about not being that? there, probably. Yeah, well, the, the amazing thing about Glastonbury was, when you think back, it started in 1970, and I'd had a few fallow years, but then sort of came back at the end of the 70s. Uh, the surprising that thing is that it wasn't covered on television for so long. And it wasn't until um, Channel 4 did the first coverage in 1985, I think it was, 84, 85, um, that uh, the, t the television had actually coverage of Glastonbury. But that sort of makes you realise that television probably made Glastonbury what it is today. Yeah. It's the coverage on Channel 4 initially and then by the BBC where they show the whole experience. It's not just the bands and all the different stages. It's all the villages and it's all the, the, the healing stuff and all the, the paraphernalia that's around it the that made it stuff. the event that it is. And it gets more people to go, I think. I, went to, I was in New York in spring and I actually saw trendy young women walking the streets of Manhattan in green wellies. Yeah. And I thought, that is completely Shorts learned. From looking at pictures, of, yeah. you know, so now Denim it's, shorts it's a, it, honestly, it's a yeah. fashion Kate Moss parade, that, isn't exactly. it? Absolutely <laughs> extraordinary. Yeah. And so, you know, 
here they are, you know, That's still how conventional going. it is. Who, who's still to play Glastonbury? We, we were talking about this earlier. I mean, who's still, apart from if ABBA reformed or the Jam reformed or the Smiths. Short of anybody really, reforming, who hasn't played? Who hasn't played? I have really no idea. We I mean, thought they, Elton John. Had everybody, haven't they? We thought Elton John. We can think yeah, of Elton yes, John. Yes. He's probably the only one left who hasn't. Yeah. So we think Elton John this year, and yeah, I'm going to William Hills and going to put money. some money on yeah. it. Yeah. 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 Um, so... Did, did you feel, um, you know, and then obviously you, you have, you know, BBC Four Friday nights nowadays, you know, with the you know, rich tradition that they've established of, you know, the retrospective documentaries of all, which are very popular, you know, particularly Friday night, not too late, please not note. Not too late. Because yeah, the, always, yeah. the audience for these things is, you know, dare I say it, ladies and gentlemen, the people in this room. You know, yeah. <laughs> who probably don't Me. like to be up too late. Am I speaking yeah. your language? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Uh so, we were talking about this before we started. You know, is this a perfect time to write this book? I think it is. I mean, I didn't realise it when I started the book. Um, I knew it was coming up to 60 years since the start of Pooh for Cats 6 5 special. But what I didn't realise that we probably get... You know, we've got to a point now where pop on television doesn't exist any longer. Well, there's going to be no more investment in a, in no. a, in a young show, is there? There's no. going to be no-one's going to invent a new Top of the Pops because well, there just you, simply you, isn't the market for well, it. Well, I mean... You, when top of the when pop up music on television started, that was the only way in which music could be seen visually. These days, you know, television just one simple way of, of, of seeing pop music visually. You've got internet, you've got stream to your iPhones, you've got all this live feeding and so on. So anybody thinking of starting a new music program now would have to really factor all that in, and try and develop something that's really spectacular to try and get the audience, because people don't sit in together anymore and watch television programmes like that. Because all these programmes are made out of existing footage, aren't they? Old, old 80s footage for, you know, nostalgia packages and Johnny Cash, etc. So right. maybe it'll never come back. Although, please bear in mind that you probably would have said the same thing ten years ago about Come Dancing. No, That's right, yeah. And, you know, it's come back in, a, in an absolutely huge way with, with a very different twist. But meanwhile, those 60 years, you know, uh, the, many of the programmes we talked about, but also the ones that we haven't had a chance to talk about, such as All Systems Freeman and uh, <laughs> what was the Tony Blackburn one? and really the Teddy Blackburn. And, and the skiffle craze in border, in border right. television <laughs> region yeah. are all lovingly remembered and documented in this fine new book, uh, Rock and Pop on British TV, which uh, Jeff, I'm sure, will be happy to autograph you a copy if, you, if you'd like to buy one. And Martin uh, from Waterstones has large piles of them There outside. you go. Freely uh, available. But meanwhile, uh, would you please say thank you to Jeff Evans. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.